I'd like you to open your Bibles again tonight to the book of Acts, chapter 19. We'll continue on our study about the question that is asked in verse 2. It says that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have you received the Holy Ghost? Since you believed. And that used to be a question that was asked a lot. In our circles, people used to think we, or refer to us, in a sense, it would be all right, refer to us as Pentecostals because of our relationship and belief in tongue speaking. Uh, they'd maybe not understand what that's all about, but uh, it was a question that was going on. It's usually what they always wanted to talk to us about, so we found ourselves talking about it a lot. And studying it a lot and really becoming very settled in this subject. I found, though, that a lot of our children, as they grew up and sat in a church where they did that and maybe did it once or some form of it, took a stab at the baptism in the Holy Spirit, as we call it, and went on their way and thought they had jabbered a few syllables. But that's the only time they did, and they haven't done it since. And I think they've missed the whole mark, or perhaps they've missed the teaching on the subject. As I said last week, I had an email from somebody who wanted to know if I'd ever taught on this subject. They'd like to know more about what it is, why it is, and how it is, and what happens when it happens. Like I said last time, I assume that everybody knows that. But as I look around, I listen to people, and I realize that a lot of our young people aren't very active spiritually when it comes to this. And you should be, because it's something that God gave to the church. It's a very important thing that is seemingly more and more in these last days made little of or not very important. And so I want a second message on the subject of have you received the Holy Spirit? Because again, it's the question, the first question that Paul, upon finding believers, disciples, I mean, he didn't assume that they, you know, you're a believer, therefore you've got the Holy Spirit. He said to them, okay, you're believers. Have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And they didn't say, as many would say today, oh, I'm sure I got it. I mean, I know I'm saved. I'm born again. I'm a member of a church, and and I'm sure I've got it. But Paul never assumed that, and the Bible doesn't say that. It's a question. Since you have believed, have you received the Holy Spirit? If it just happened automatically and all of that happens at once, there's no reason for the question. There's no reason for him to say, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? So that's the question. And I could ask you here tonight, all of you, the older ones, you younger ones, have you, since you believed, have you received the Holy Spirit? How do you know you have? Based on what have you? What good has it been since you have, if you have? What have you done with it? There's questions here that need to be answered. And let's talk about it some more. And we said last week, said this about God's gift to the sinner and God's gift to the saint. God's gift to a sinner is Jesus Christ. He is the basis and the reason for our being saved. And in John chapter 1 and verse 12, it says, For as many as received him. Today it's called as many as have accepted him. We don't accept him. He accepts us. He is offered to us as a solution to our sin nature and our sinfulness and for the penalty of our sin. And so all we can do is receive what God offers to us or gives to us. And so as many as have received him... God says God has given them the authority or the power, the King James says, the power to become the sons of God. And really, we could read it, the authority to become the children of God. That is, you are his by virtue of believing in what Jesus did for you. God opened your eyes. You saw that. You came to your need for that. You saw your need for it. You saw your sinfulness. You repented. You asked God to save you. And God's gift to the sinner is Jesus Christ. Now, 
we didn't turn to this one last week, but turn to it now in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 11. God's gift to the saint is the Holy Spirit. Every Christian needs to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Every Christian needs to receive the Holy Spirit. And he said, you shall receive power when the Holy Ghost has come upon you, Jesus said. Remember this, in John 1, 12, when the Holy Spirit comes, you're given the authority or the right to be God's child. God gives you, offers you, and sends his Holy Spirit to make your authority effective on the earth. As a Christian, you're on a mission. There is a way that God wants you to live. I don't believe you can live the fullness of that way without his spirit. Jesus said this in Matthew 3.11. He said, I have a baptism to be baptized with. And he said, he will baptize you, how? With the Holy Ghost and with fire. Now, do we need that? Now, he said, Jesus will do this. It's the Holy Spirit who convicts of sin. He points us to Christ as the great need for, to be saved. And once you're saved, you are now told that there is a baptism by Jesus into the Spirit that you need. It's an equipping that you don't have without that. It's kind of like getting a supercharger on your motor so you can go the distance and make it to wherever he wants you to go. If that wasn't necessary, there wouldn't be so much emphasis on it. If we didn't need the Holy Spirit and what the Bible says he does and how he does things, if we didn't need that, if that wasn't something that we should pursue, and the Bible wouldn't say all, as I said, all those things that he says about it. Notice, when the Holy Spirit comes, specifically, he comes to illumine. Ephesians 1, spirit of wisdom and revelation. He opens your eyes to show you things you haven't seen before. He comes to convict of sin. He comes to guide. He comes to lead. He comes to show you the future, things to come. All of these things that we need is what the Holy Spirit specifically comes to do. We're going to turn to a lot of scriptures tonight because I want you to see it and not take my word for it. But in John chapter 16, remember there last week, he said, I have verse 13. I have many more things to say to you. Didn't Jesus say, I have more to say than I've said? I want you to get the picture. In John 16, Jesus is saying to his disciples who have heard him teach for three years. Now you can say a lot in three years. They heard things that were intimate, that is quite personal, alone on hillsides. No big crowd, just a few of us have been privileged to hear specific, special things. Things that they wrote about, and we may not understand all of it yet, but he had them in his inner circle. He explained things to them. He'd preach a sermon. They'd go somewhere. They'd follow him and say, what did you mean? Then he would tell them. But then he said this. He said, I have more things to tell you. More than what you've heard, didn't he? And then in verse 12, he said, you can't handle it. It wouldn't mean anything to you now because there is something that you've got to have in addition to what you've got that will enable you to know what you need to know in order to do what you're called to do. And he said, how be it when he, in verse 13, the spirit of truth has come, said he will guide you into all the truth. Now that's a lot. But he's called the spirit of truth. And the word comes by the spirit. It's all breathed out by the spirit of God. It's the word of God breathed out by the Lord through men. And that's what he comes to illumine us and teach us and guide us and show us and quicken us and reveal to us and convict us about. It's the word of God. Change your whole life. Making growth possible, making growth a necessity. No more grumbling, no more complaining. It's a necessity in my life. I've got to cope. I've got to deal with it. I've got to make it. I can do because I have a boost. And your life changes. 
I believe it's impossible for any person who says they're Christian to continue to live the old way. I don't believe that's possible. I don't believe God can take up residence in a person in the measure that he does when you're filled with the Spirit. I don't think there can be an exaltation of God in anybody's life like that. And you can remain the, just a blase, nominal soul that you used to be. I think God's got a bigger part in your life than our lives than that. Now, would you look at Acts chapter 2 again? Let me point out to you three things. He said, first of all, to set the record straight, the first thing that's required is that you believe. Not mentally agree, as it's easy for us who sit in church, I did. I followed my parents to church. Whatever they did, I did. The believing came later in my life. Really being convicted to see my need and then grasp it and make it my life. Believing, true believing. And the second thing he says in 19, he says, Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And then the next thing in verse 5, he baptized them in water. That's the natural sequence. In the New Testament, it's believe and then be baptized. I told you once about Bonnie that went forward in church a year after we got saved. I wondered what sin she'd committed that I didn't know about. But she told the preacher who related it back to us, and when he related it back, it made all the sense in the world. I never thought of it before. He said, Bonnie has come forward saying that since she's been saved, she's never been baptized. She was baptized before she was saved as a church routine or a church thing, but never since she's been saved, and she wants to be properly baptized. And I thought, you know what? A whole bunch of us are going to get in the water. That made sense to me. And then later on, I realized that in the New Testament, they were all baptized in the name of Jesus. Well, I never had it, so I did it again. I've covered all my bases. I'm sure I've been sprinkled as a little Catholic. Whatever they do, I wouldn't remember any of it. And I was dunked when I was 12. I was dunked when I was 28. And I was dunked when I was 29. And probably later on at Zion Lake. But anyway, that's the New Testament way. You are born again because, first of all, you believe. And when you believe, you receive. And once you have received, there is a baptism. It typifies your salvation. You recognize that Christ is your Savior. And publicly, as an attestation to that, you submit yourself to a burial in a watery grave. That's why I believe in immersion. You are buried with him in baptism, and when you're raised up from this water, it's like being washed, and your sins are washed away, and you come out of the water away from your sins. This was a public testimony that I am a believer. If you did that in Israel, you were disowned by your family if you were Jewish. I mean, that was something that you better be careful what you did. But today, it's the way it's supposed to be. Water baptism is made very light of today. A brother in the church approached me not long ago, the same thing that Bonnie did. He said, you know, I, I think I was saved when I was 16. I don't think I've ever been baptized. You know, I don't think I've ever had a Christian baptism like they did in the Bible. And I said, you want me to baptize? He said, yeah, I'd like to do that. And I said, well, there's so many that would like to do it. When it gets a little warmer, and we shouldn't have to wait. It gets a little warmer. We'll go out to Jay's house. We'll have a picnic. He's got enough of that lake on his boundary. We can go down into the water and come out clean. And we'll announce that and we'll do that. And if you feel like you need to be properly baptized, we'll get it done in one day. Amen. But then after that, the very next thing that they did in verse six, Bible says he laid his hands on them. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes it doesn't happen. But in this case, he laid his hands on them and they received the Holy Ghost. How do they know they received the Holy Ghost? They spoke in tongues and they prophesied. Sometimes that prophecy is literally glorifying God. Not literally as far as a translation of the word, but prophesying in this sense is not you know, I got filled with the Spirit, now I'm predicting the future. But it's glorifying God. 
They could have just said, oh, hallelujah, praise the Lord. God is great. God, I mean, whatever the Spirit led them and however he came upon them, they not only spoke in tongues, but it says, and they prophesied. Now, that's how they knew. That was how the Jews at Jerusalem knew that in the house of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. That's later, but that's how they knew. If they hadn't have done that, they wouldn't have accepted whatever kind of emotional experience they might have had. Because when God poured out his spirit, he told us clearly. In Joel chapter 2 and verse 28, he said, In the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and... He didn't leave it just say, I'll pour out my spirit and leave the, the evidence of whatever up to you. He said, and you shall prophesy your sons and daughters, your dreams and visions. Things like this will begin to happen amongst you. All because of this activity of the Holy Spirit being poured out or falling upon, which is described in several ways. So... When Jesus said at the end of his walk on this earth, he said, these signs shall follow those who believe. One of those signs was they shall speak with new tongues. Now, I think the church has largely ignored that just as historically the church has ignored the need or the acceptance of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And when they lost the experience of what the Holy Spirit does, and that was no longer the motivation of their life or their need or church life, they begin to turn to man's system and man's ways and man's designs, and it became a man-made structure. I know people today don't like me to say that. I have to keep saying it because it's true. And they have been a substitution of a spirit-led life or a ritual-led life. And we begin to base our salvation on how nice and kind and sweet everybody was and how I feel about this. Your strongest passions, your most urgent feelings about something never are indicators of the truth. It simply is how you feel. You can say, oh, I just believe something so strong. I just know it's true because, boy, I can feel it. That never makes it true. What makes anything true is, is it according to the word of God? <clears throat> And we have to go with that. And that's what God holds us to, and that's what we hold ourselves to. I don't want anything else. Because everything else that man has tried to do, and everything that man has added to the church to make it the way he wants it to, has robbed the people in the church, and, and, and the Spirit isn't in it anymore. It's just what the Bible calls a dead letter. There's no life in it. It's just a routine, a ritual. I grew up in it. I mean, the church I grew up in was like that. Nothing was expected and nothing ever happened. And if anything happened that wasn't in the bulletin, there was a meeting. You just didn't do anything different than the man had devised the way he wanted it done. It was decent and in order. It was quiet. It was soothing. It's how we have planned to do things, and we don't want anything to change that. He uses freely the language, well, you know, the Spirit of the Lord and the Spirit of the Lord and the Spirit of the Lord. If the Spirit of the Lord had came in that place, had come in that place like it finally did, it would have split it, and it did. But anyway, the Bible has a lot to say about it. So we have learned this much. Receiving the Holy Spirit is a significant experience. It's a Bible experience, something that God gives and something that God wants his people to have. And without it, that the very best you can do is probably be somewhat religious. You can study theology. I believe, I believe that apart from the Holy Spirit, you can study the facts and the figures, the dates, the systems, the times, the chronology, and a lot of things about religion. Because if you're intelligent, you can process a lot of that. And you can be probably very gifted at sharing that and know it backwards and forwards. And this sounds terrible to say it, but it's true. That doesn't mean you believe it. It means you understand what you know and you've learned it and you've got the big picture. And maybe you're archaeologically right. You've got it all dated right and everything. But that doesn't mean that's the reason you live the kind of life you live. 
The simplicity that is in Christ is so simple that you don't have to be a heady, an intelligent, smart person to live this way. You only need to be filled with the Spirit. It's the anointing that breaks the yoke. And the presence, the active presence of the Holy Spirit, which we would call an anointing, is what makes things work for us. It's what gives richness to what God is saying and what he's doing. It's what gives us that go-ahead thing. And that's what we need so badly in the church. We don't get tired of it or weary of it. But it's a significant experience. And secondly, and I think the Bible proves this, that it is subsequent to your salvation, to your new birth. It follows that. You're born again because you ask, and you receive the Holy Spirit because you ask. Because Jesus said that he would give the Holy Spirit to those that ask him. Didn't he say that? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Ghost to those that ask him? If you didn't have to ask him for it, there would be no reason for him to say that. And so this is all part of the way it's supposed to be. And a, a third thing is about the Holy Spirit that it's supernatural. While the devil tries to imitate spiritual activity, emotional outbursts and while I'm probably uh, somewhat of a charismatic Calvinist, somewhat, boy, that would never fit in the Reformation at all. But being somewhat of a charismatic Calvinist, some of the flakiest things in people I've seen are charismatics. And so I don't want to label myself after any movement or any body or any name of anybody. I love them all. I think they all had something good to say. Some had a lot more to say than others. But I would really like for God to just keep my focus on Jesus and to pursue him with all my heart and be aided and gifted with all the heavenly things that God gives for us to find all the spiritual truth and, and joy that we can find. And the only way this is going to happen is with the Holy Spirit. Now, let me show you a bigger picture. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Wonderful part of Scripture. Ephesians is a wonderful book. They all are, of course, but in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 12, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom, after that you heard the word of God, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. And let me read this one because we'll come back to it in a minute. Verse 14, which is the earnest or the pledge of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. It's a kind of heady words, but they're very simple, but they mean so much more than a lot of people I think would like for them to mean. But let me get to it. First of all, he said in verse 13, in whom you also trusted after you believed. And he said, after you believed and trusted, he said, you were what? Sealed. You were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. How do you think of that? We don't talk about this much, not in Christianity, not since I've been a Christian. It's not a very common subject. We read it. We know it's there. We ask the question, I wonder what that really means. Because tonight it has to do with receiving the Holy Spirit. It's quite an important thing, actually. First you believe. Then you receive. That's the way it is in the Bible. First believe. Then you receive. And then the next thing he says, or he describes it in verse 13, he says, in whom, after you heard the word of God and you received it and you believed it, after you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Now, let me give you a couple definitions from the Greek dictionary of what the word sealed means. It means to set a seal or a mark upon a thing as a token of its authenticity or a stamp of ownership. Now, we understand that. There was a time when you sent letters by hand, 
And like it was a king's letter, they'd pour a little bit of tallow on it, and the king would take his ring and make an impression in the tallow while it was hot. And when it dried, it dried over where the letter was sealed. And so whoever got the letter, he knew that nobody had ever gotten into the envelope because the seal was not broken. Because the seal testified to this. This is personal mail. This is my mail to you. Now think about that. We often think of, you know, some kind of a vault that has a seal on it. It's not that you can't break the seal and get in the vault. But the seal testifies to this, that the owner of the contents in there has put his seal up here. He's the only one that's going to open that. And when he does, the contents will be able to be brought out and so forth. But he says, you and I, when we receive the Holy Spirit, we were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Does your Bible say that? Let me make sure it says that. We were sealed with that Holy Spirit A promise. In the same dictionary, it says figuratively, the word sealed means to secure to someone, to make sure, or to deliver over safely. Now you start thinking about what we've said so far, and you realize this, that when God seals something, it's his stamp of authenticity and acceptance and oversight and care for for this person. You're his. No wonder he was able to say that I know my sheep, my sheep know me. No man will pluck them out of my hand. Why? Because they're mine. How do you know you can keep them? Because by divine direction, he seals his own. How does he seal them? Are you afraid to say it? I was years ago. I wouldn't have said it, but I'll say it now. He seals them with the Holy Spirit. That's the sign. That's the seal. The seal of authenticity. These specifically are mine. Another one says that he speaks also of Christians whom God attests and confirms by the gift of the Holy Spirit as the earnest pledge or seal of their election to salvation. You say, well, that sounds like a Calvinist. It probably was. Probably was. It was a dictionary. I don't know who the author of it was. But that's some pretty serious stuff. Is that why Jesus said at the end of his life, his earthly life, these signs shall follow those who believe? Is that why Paul was in such earnest when he passed through the upper coast of Ephesus and finding certain disciples, he said, have we received the Holy Ghost? Is that why it should be a big deal to us? See, we don't want it to be like that. I say we editorially as Christians. The Christian church has shied away. Christians, as a rule, have shied away from this Holy Ghost talk and stuff because it smacks of either Pentecostalism, excessive emotionalism, or something that is not socially acceptable. It's a stigma. If you're a tongues talker, you're half ignorant, don't treat your family right, you drive too fast, and you look awful. Because there's something about the way this has been painted, as I told you last time. My mother, when I asked her, you know, she said, where have you been? When my pastor got back from vacation and I couldn't wait till he got back, he'd been gone for two weeks and I was climbing the wall. And I said, Brother John, what is this baptism in the Holy Spirit? And he looked at me and he said it. He did. I remember remember where I was standing, where he was sitting, the window right behind him. And he said, where have you been? What's going on? And I told him the story. He said, there's nothing to all that. It's just a bunch of gibberish and by people that just are misinformed. Well, I thought, that's it. I'm done with it. Until one night we came in from a witnessing program. We had a church witnessing program. Two of us went out every week. (laughs) It's a church witnessing program. We were not doing well at all. Everything was pretty dry. We were knocking on doors. Nobody was home. If somebody was home, they didn't want to talk. Nobody lived there anymore. And, you know, we would come back really disappointed because we had this zeal to see people saved. And we thought, you know, we could just do that by sheer doing it. And we had no pop. 
we noticed the sermons, you know, had kind of become dry, just dried out. Living water became kind of like a little creek, a little creek bed. We were praying that one night in front of the church as we did every time we came in from the witnessing program. We'd go into church sanctuary and pray. We always did. So we were there in our places on the steps that lead up to the main part. And our pastor, Brother John, said, Lord, I don't know why we're so dry. I said, amen, as we are. We're, we're really dry. Amen. And we just can't seem to get going. Amen. That's, that's right, Lord. We just can't seem to get going. We need more than what we've got, Lord. And Lord, we need more than what we've got. We ain't got nothing. <laughs> and then he said, maybe we've missed it somewhere. Yeah, we, we've, we're missing it. He said, maybe we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't know about that. Wait a minute, John. No, only I'm not doing this on the outside. I'm not that ignorant, but I mean, I, on the inside, I'm drawn back. And say, what? I didn't think we were for this. I thought this was something that, you know, we don't want that. And so after we got through praying, I said, Brother John, what's this about the Holy Spirit? I mean, he said, Tom, we need something. Uh, that's true. You reckon that's it? He said, well, we need to find out. Oh, I thought, man, we're going to slobber. Our eyes will cross. We'll drop our babies in the middle of the church service, and we're going to scream and yell, and they're going to lock us up for sure. Now, this is the picture that's painted. When you're in a decent church like ours, you know, you came before the Lord in the morning, and you were just, everything was so dignified. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before he you know. And you go home like this, and you came like this. Now, listen, when you're saved, and you want to really walk with the Lord, and the harder you try in the man-made ways you're trying, it doesn't work. Then your attention goes to something more than just man. And it was God. Maybe that is the answer. We began to seek. I remember that morning. I received it. It's a long story, but I came to church one morning. I was the first one. Nobody laid hands on me. I was in the front row there that night, and it just happened. As we're getting ready to go home, it just happened. Happened for about 10 seconds. Just as boom. Everybody just looked at me. About a week or two later, everybody was trying to get it. All the people that was with us, everybody's asking for it. Now, Lord, fill us with the Holy Ghost. Oh, Lord, we need the Holy Ghost. <laughs> One morning I came to church, and there was Brother John. He hadn't, didn't look like he had shaved well. If he had, you know, he missed a few spots, and he just kind of looked tired and weary. And I came to church, and he said, come here a minute. He said, he said, anything going on, you know, anything new with you? And I said, just, John, you don't look good. Is something wrong? He said, man, I've been up all night long. I haven't been to bed. He said, don't you tell anybody, you know. He said, I, I prayed. I asked God. I read the Bible. He said, I crawled across the room on my bed. I just crawled, Lord, give me some. You know, Lord, give. I did everything I could to try to get him to fill me with the Holy Spirit. And I told him about 3 o'clock this morning, I said, forget it. I don't want it. I don't want it. If I have to go, you know, I just don't want it. Forget it. Of course, everybody else was getting it, and he, and he wasn't. And later on, he did. Said he did. I believe he did. But we got really hungry. It was almost like, fill me or kill me. Because there's a release. Everything about Jesus seems to have been, as I look back, never able to fully identify how you define this. But as I look back, it was like the Jesus I wanted to be as much as he said he was in the Bible suddenly became possible. Yes. I didn't want to be filled with the Spirit so my Sunday school class would come alive. I wanted to be filled with the Spirit because I knew that was what God gave us and wanted. I didn't know what would happen. Neither did I care. I didn't care what everybody started thinking. You're not going to go very far in the Christian faith. And if you're ever get in the pulpit, you're going to have to get over the fact that you, 
you can't be concerned about what everybody thinks. You just need to be concerned about whether you're right or not. And so anyway, when the Holy Spirit came, it was a sealing. I didn't know that then. I didn't realize that now. But it was like a personal stamp of this is my property. It will be maintained and kept by me until it's over and until you enter into your inheritance. You will be sealed until that day. How do you know? Because he said the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes, that's what he does. I wouldn't have said these things 20 years ago because I don't know that that would have been something that I could have said, but I can say it now. To set a seal or a mark upon a human being, a mark that you cannot see, but a mark that you can hear, but a mark that's not acceptable. Everybody wants to argue about it. I don't believe you have to. I don't know why you have to do that. What good is it? We've heard that all my life. But let me tell you something tonight concerning your salvation and the weary road that we must journey through. It's not easy. Most people quit. You know that. But getting to the end takes more than what you are personally capable of doing. But God guarantees you're going to make it. Guarantees you're going to make it. What about all those people, those wonderful men in history that didn't, you know, they might not have known that much about it. That might not have been something that was really become greatly evident to them in our country, amongst us. It didn't happen for us until the mid-60s. You know, the last century started with an outpouring of the Spirit out west and up on the west coast. And there was an outpouring of the Spirit, and tongues speaking appeared. And old traditional churches began right away of hammering away at that, but they couldn't stop They just grew. You couldn't stop it. Things began to happen, especially the healing that began to happen. Then in the last century, in the middle of the century, there was a great healing campaigns. And men that were anointed, services weren't teaching services. They didn't come to learn anything. They came to be healed. And God healed masses of people. You can't deny that. Then they begin to argue amongst themselves who was the biggest and who was the greatest and on and on and on. And all of that died down through the 50s. And there was a revival time, the Billy Graham time, and the great crowds came forward. Now you don't have much of that today. But in the 60s, it was a very quiet movement, kind of like when Jesus came to the earth. People asked the question, well, why don't we read much in history about Jesus? Why would you? Who cared about him? What significance was Jesus to anybody in the time he was on this earth? They had to bribe Judas, as I've said, which one of them is Jesus? They didn't go out to hear him. They didn't measure who he followed or who followed him or where he did what he did or the miracle. Nobody wrote that down. It was just a quiet, unnoticed movement, just like the 60s. And here came the teachers. The teaching movement. That's what it was. And for the first time, people that were busy in healing campaigns and busy in revivals and getting saved, suddenly God poured out his spirit in a unique and special way in the 60s. And he began to raise up the teachers. Just intelligent. They were all intelligent. Most of them were. They were intelligent, knowledgeable men who could teach things that just stuck with your ribs. That's when I came to the Lord. I came to the Lord in 1968. And right away when the cassette tapes were just being invented, all of that stuff was available. You could get as much of that as you wanted. We got a lot of it. You bought tape recorders for your rooms, your house, your car. Everywhere you could put a tape recorder. You couldn't get too much of this. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. People without the Holy Spirit wonder, what's the big deal? Why are you so excited? I can't help being excited. I still can't. Tonight, it's still real. I mean, this is a journey that is a journey of journeys. Wow. 
Because I know in whom, like Paul, I know in whom I have believed, and I'm convinced. I'm not living a wandering, I don't know, but I wonder if I don't know, but I wonder what will happen. It's, that's all gone. I'm convinced that what he said he'll do. And when it's over, he'll be there. And I have to attribute my salvation to Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. But the emphasis on Christ, the becoming aware of, the devotion to that you have, the drive that you have, comes from the Holy Spirit. Only he can open our eyes. Jesus said when he comes, didn't he say this? When he comes, he will open your eyes. And in Ephesians 1, 17 or so, he'll open your heart. And when he does, you as a Christian will begin to see things you couldn't see any other way. You'll have in your heart the certainty of something and you can't even explain it, but you know it'll work. Like, how can you explain divine healing? You can't. You just know it is. You know that you can lay hands on your kids. Your hands are just common hands. And you can lay hands on your children. And God said he would heal them. And because you believe, he does. And even today, people still quite, well, I don't know about that. You've got to know about that. Don't deny the Lord by saying, well, I don't know. You need to receive the Holy Spirit. You need to be filled with the Spirit. Same word. I mean, the same thing. This is what he does. Look in chapter 4 of Ephesians about this being sealed, being selectively taken by the Lord and his seal of authenticity. You're his. You are his. His spirit is in you. Now look at chapter 4 and verse 30. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God whereby you are what? How long are you sealed? Isn't that good? How can anybody say anything else? You are sealed until the day of redemption. That's the day in which the content that is being sealed enters into its inheritance. It'll be worth it, won't it? Go back to chapter 1 again. Chapter 1 again. Look at verse 14 again. About the Holy Spirit, he said at the end of verse 13, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. And he said in verse 14, which is the earnest or the pledge or the down payment of our inheritance until when? Until the redemption of the purchased possession. Let me get just a little bit ahead of myself again. What does he mean by purchased possession? Possessed by who? By the Lord. Based on what? He bought you. 1 Corinthians 6.20. We have been bought with a price. Who bought us? The Lord. Why would he buy us? Why indeed? He's going to buy somebody. Heaven wasn't made aimlessly. It's going to be inhabited. And the people he picks to inhabit his heaven? Wow. But he said, we are sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise until, again, until the redemption of the purchased possession. Who's being redeemed? Us. Who's the purchased possession? Us. Who's the inheritance for? Us. How do you know you're going to get it? Because he has sealed you unto that day. Heaven's mark is on you. And if it is, you know what? We're going to be there. I'm, I'm not going to take that for granted. I'm going to believe that. And I have to make my calling and election sure by living like it's true. If you believe it, you will. You don't just sit back and say, well, I'm going to heaven. You know, I'm sealed today. every day. You don't know that. You believe that. You believe what he says. You believe what he says. You live like what he said is true. And all the ingredients that God adds to that to make you joyful while you're doing it, he does. In Ephesians chapter 4, again, he says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you're sealed. Let me ask you a question. 
you that are pondering is who seals you? The Lord does, doesn't he? How do you know he does? How do you know God seals you? What's the great sign of being sealed? You receive the Holy Spirit, doesn't you? How do you know you receive the Holy Spirit? Because I go to church and I've been saved. I've been born again. How could I be saved without the Holy Spirit? Well, if you're saved, if when you get saved, you've got all of that, then why would he ask, have you received since? Why ask the question if you've already got everything? Why indeed? He breathed on them in John 24. And he said, receive you the Holy Spirit, didn't he? 1 Corinthians 15, he said, the second Adam, which is Christ, the first Adam brought a sin. The second Adam is a life-giving spirit. And here, fresh from heaven, redemption is a fact. It goes into the upper room, just like a clay figure that God made with his hands. He come to us, and he breathed divine life into him. And then he said to them, look in Luke 24. Look in Luke 24, praise the Lord, verse 49. And to these people that he had breathed into, he did that in John 20, but in Luke chapter 24 and verse 49, here's the instruction he gave to his disciples. And behold, there's a word promise again. Behold, I send the promise of my father upon you. And here's what I want you to do. Tarry, tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem. Is that what he said? Until what? Then apparently these disciples who had had that other experience, apparently they needed to be endued with something they did not have. They had Christ. He attached himself to them. Then he said, now I'm going to go to the Father in John 15, John 14 and 26. He said, I'm going to send you another comforter. I'm going to go to heaven and the Father will send you a comforter. I will not leave you alone. He said in John 15, he says, now I'm going to send a promise. When I get there, I'm going to send it to you. That's a promise. I'm not going to leave you orphans. I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm not going to let you wander around. You're going to be equipped with divine guidance all the days of your life. But before any of this starts, I want you to go to Jerusalem. I want you to tarry. That means to wait. In a place where you're going to be, I want you to tarry there until I send the promise of my Father upon you. The promise of my Father. The Holy Spirit's promise. And when he came, there was a definite way that they knew it was. It was on the day of Pentecost. You remember the story. You can't deny it. You know, for a lot of churches, the book of Acts is still in the Bible, especially chapter 2 and chapter 1. It's still in there. It still gives evidence to the truth. It is still as God intended for it to be. It's there. And he said, when that happens, I'll send the promise of my Father upon you. Now, what's this promise called? Is it called the promise of the Father? Didn't he say this would be God's seal? Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. This would be God's seal. God's seal and God's pledge. How's that? What does the word earnest mean? Earnest is like saying down payment. Earnest money is money given in good faith that you're going to do the rest of the deal. It's kind of like a pledge. I'll give you this money. I'll give you this much money down. I'm going to be committed to this. And you know I'm going to be back to finish this off because that's a lot of money and I don't want to lose it. This is earnest money. Good faith money. It's what earnest would mean. The dictionary says that earnest stands for the price paid beforehand to confirm that the transactor will pay the full amount. Earnest. Now, if Jesus is the earnest of our inheritance, let me see what he says. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, he which establishes us with you in Christ and hath anointed us is God. That's verse 21. Verse 22, who has also done what? 
who has also sealed us and in the same breath and given us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. That's his down payment on you. You're his. We'll finish it when you get your inheritance. When it's all over, you pass the test. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. He will bring you in and then it'll all be done for you. You're there. In the meantime, he says, I will never leave you. I will keep you. Now, if God said he's going to keep us, guess who's going to get kept? How do you know he will? He gave us his word. He gave us his pledge. I will. You're mine. And he that started this good work in you is what? He's going to finish it. Look in Romans 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 8 and 9. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, flesh would be like being carnal, fleshly. You can't live the way the world lives and the way the world acts and be Christ. All right? Verse 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If what? If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, who, that's where we're saved. You receive him, and he has a baptism to baptize you with that exalts him. If you don't have Christ, you're not even saved. But if you're Christ, and he baptizes you, or fills you, or gives you, or pours out upon you the Holy Spirit, I want you to know tonight that that is an earnest that's his side. Say, I will finish what I've started with you. I will be with you always, even, even to the end of the world. You will never be without me. And there's no place you can go that I cannot keep you. And there's no situation you can find yourself in that I cannot deliver you out of. I'm your source. I'm your life. I'm your way. I'm the truth. And that's what the Holy Spirit amplifies. Until our lives are all about Jesus. All about Jesus. And he said in verse 15. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. But we have received the spirit of adoption. There again in a different way. He's adopted you. Can you see this? He has personally made you his own by his spirit, which comes in a specific and a deliberate way. And verse 16 says, the spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Can you say that? Do you have that in your heart? Does your spirit bear witness with him that you're his, that he's your life? That he's the whole reason you want to live? That even no matter what comes and what way it comes, that he is big enough to keep you, sustain you, and deliver you from it? Because he's never going to lead you anywhere he can't keep you. He's never going to give you something to believe that's bad for you. He'll challenge you. Because he wants you to make decisions. We're not some mechanical thing that heaven just rings a bell. and we just, We're all gifted with a will. We all have to make personal choices in how we respond to God. And I'll tell you something. The Holy Spirit's very persuasive. Very persuasive in encouraging you to do things that God wants you to do. The way God wants you to do it. 2 Corinthians 5.5, 5, he said, Who hath also given us the earnest of the Spirit. Throughout this New Testament, this is a flavor of it. New Testament Christians were believers in Christ who had experienced the baptism of Jesus into the Holy Spirit that he spoke of in Matthew 3. They had an experience which was not just left to open interpretation, but it was something unique amongst all of them. They all had similar experiences. That's how in Acts 10 they knew that the Gentiles had received the Holy Spirit. Nothing else would have worked. It was a universal experience. And yet you're living in a time, uh, and not the dark ages, of course, but there is a darkness. 
that at this present hour, as I speak, there is a darkness that is coming over, over the world. The rulers of darkness are gaining ground more and more. And wickedness is increasing in this world. And I can't think of any, anybody hated more than Christians and Jews. And we are a minority. What happens to us, the world cares nothing about. In fact, when the rapture takes place, they'll be glad we're gone. They won't know what happened. They wouldn't believe if you did tell them what's happened. They're just glad you're gone. I mean, you're just troublemakers is what you are. I mean, you don't even accept gay marriage. What's wrong with you people? I don't either. There are just some things that the Holy Spirit leans on us real hard about. In a lot of ways, it's more and more is going to be true. He takes away from us the fear of taking a stand and of standing up for Christ and what he believes. There's just a gifting there. There's something about when the Holy Spirit comes, you are enabled in a way that you wasn't before. Now, if there's one word to me tonight as we close that stands out about the promise of the Spirit, receiving the Holy Spirit and the earnest and the pledge. It's the word preservation. I believe in preservation. One of the five points of Calvinism defined by the acrostic, by the word tulip. You come down to the P in the word tulip and it stood for the preservation of the saints or the preserving of the saints. That when God calls his people to him, he calls them in such a way that he does what he does. And this, I think it's due with the Holy Spirit. He does what he does. They're made aware of what he did. They know he did something different and unique. Their whole life changes. They become sealed and convinced. There's a way to walk now that you never could walk before. They know that. Something has happened, something good and something deep. And the something that has happened also includes this. Now that God has put his seal upon you, he's going to keep you and preserve you in this life until the very end. There is an inheritance that is waiting for us. The Bible speaks of an inheritance laid up in heaven, reserved waiting for its inhabitants. And you know who they are? Until the redemption of the purchased possession, until you're caught up to meet the Lord in the air, until you're with the Lord, the purchased possession, that's us. And he said the Holy Spirit is going to keep you unto that day. Now, I don't know about you. I can't speak for any of you. But that means something to me. That means something to me. And anything he's got for me that goes with that, let me have it. Now let me close and say this. Concerning the Holy Spirit, it's a promise. Did we read that in Ephesians 1.13? You're sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Did he not say, tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until I send the promise of my Father upon you? And when he comes, you'll know it. The promise. You shall receive power when the Holy Ghost comes upon you. That's a promise. And the promise is attached to and equated to the receiving of the Holy Spirit. That other experience, that special ex experience. We'll probably close with this, but turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 37, on that great day of Pentecost. Verse 37 now, when they heard this, when they heard an anointed word from Peter, they never paid any attention to these guys prior to this, but now it's anointed. Now it's anointed. Jesus is behind it all. He's prompting this whole thing. He said, now, verse 37, now they, when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts. That's the work of the Spirit. And it said unto Peter and John and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? That's what we ought to say. When we need to say that, that's what we ought to say. Then Peter said unto them, and this is the sequence, repent 
That has to do with believing in what you've heard and you want it. Repent and what? And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And verse 9, our word again. For the promise is unto you and unto your children and to people in Shelbyville, whether they're Methodists, Baptists, Pentecostals, Presbyterians, whatever they are. If they're Christians, if they have a hunger for God, this is for them. He said, the promise is unto you and your children and is all that are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. And we'll use that verse again next week. How did they know they had received the Holy Spirit? Verse 4. When the place began to shake and the tongues of fire came down on all these New Testament saints, that had never happened before in history. The closest thing we ever had to this was in the Old Testament when the writing was on the wall. A finger, the Holy Ghost wrote in tongues on the wall, wrote four words. It took 19 words to interpret it. Many, many tickle you farson. And how to get 19 or 21 words out of four words? Well, read it. But it had to be interpreted. Are you with me? It meant nothing until the gift was given to the interpreter. And on the day of Pentecost, when the day was fully come, they were all assembled together, not getting along well, but they were together. The Bible says they were all together in one place in one accord. And there came a sound. So I said, what in the world is that? There came a sound. Never happened before. This is brand new experience on planet Earth. First time ever. Nobody ever duplicated this. Nobody can. It came a sound from heaven like a mighty rushing wind. And the place where they were all sitting. And tongues of fire set upon each one of them. And they began to speak in tongues. They were speaking in a language, a human language. They were speaking in words, that, a dialect that others that they knew about. But there are different kinds of tongues. There are diverse kinds of tongues. That just happened to be the way he did it on Pentecost. When Paul spoke of his personal prayer time, he said, you know, when I speak in a tongue, my understanding is unfruitful. I don't know what I'm saying, but I'm not talking to anybody. I'm talking to God. And in the spirit, he understands, which is another reason we'll get to next week, why you ought to do it. And so he said in Acts Chapter 2, when that happened, they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And the whole world, from that day to this, has forever been changed and challenged. And we'll close in chapter 10, because in chapter 10 was the first outpouring on Gentiles, of which y'all are, except for one of you, y'all are Gentiles. Verse 44, chapter 10. While Peter yet spoke these words, the Holy Ghost fell. He fell. He was poured out. Uh, he came upon various ways the Bible describes the coming of the Spirit. Baptized, received, fell, poured out, that type of thing. But it says here, he was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. Verse 46 begins with four. This is why they knew that this was the Holy Ghost. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. They knew it was real. They had seen it before. In fact, they had done it. I remember a preacher on the radio one time said nobody spoke in tongues but the apostles. And it said here in verse 47 that those who came with Christ said, Can any man forbid that these should not be baptized who received the Holy Spirit the same as we? He just took brethren with him. He didn't take a bunch of apostles. He took brethren with him down there to the Gentiles. And God poured out his spirit. They began to speak in other tongues, that awful word tongues, and glorify God. And they said with Peter, They've got the same thing we got. What happened to us, it just happened to the Gentiles. God's opened the door for salvation and the Christian life to Gentiles. We know he has because look what's happened to them. 
And the first thing that they did after that was what? The very next verse. And he commanded them what? They were all baptized. Amen. Now, let me close and send you home with this. The earnest of our inheritance is that act of God in placing his seal upon his people. How do you know he did? Because of what happened in the Bible. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. He's the spirit of promise. He's the one who seals us until the day of our inheritance comes. Ephesians 1, 14. You are the purchased possession of God. You were bought with the price. You belong to him. He is going to keep you, and no man is going to break that seal. He's going to keep you until it's over. You will make it. I believe, maybe I'm partly Baptist, but I believe in eternal security. I believe that God secures those who are eternally his. Amen. Bow your head with me. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we pray tonight that you would illumine us and make us to see and understand the truth about this. I know how the devil must hate it and how he must fight it. And how he tries so hard to convince people that that's not important. Make us to see what you're saying. Let us not believe what anybody tells us, but let us believe what you show us. And if you send people to tell us things that inspire us to look and in that way show it to us, send them. We want to get it right. We want to get it right. And we ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.